Please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. On Tuesday night we looked at the fifth of these six churches of Revelation, the church at Sardis. And we saw that Sardis was a church that was very much asleep. There was the accusation that this church in Sardis had become dead. There was the apathy in this church that they had stopped doing the things that they should have been doing and once had been doing. But we saw at the very end that little glimmer of hope that despite the slumber, despite the morbidity of this church, there was the award. For there were some in the church who remained faithful, who did not share others' disinterest, but kept doing the things of God. And so we move from the city of Sardis to the city of Philadelphia. And we read together in Revelation chapter 3 from verse 7 to verse 13. And God's word says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. (coughs) Faithfulness has rapidly come to mean loyalty when things are straightforward. In other words, it is easy to be loyal, it is easy to be faithful when things are easy. Faithfulness and difficulty is actually the hardest thing in the world. How often we see it in our world round about us, those who declare they are faithful to something, but then when uh, the, the, the trials come... And the problems arise. Uh, Their once faithful declaration is forgotten about. And they desert those who need them most. The 33rd president of the United States of America. That is uh, for those of you that don't know the numbers. That is Harry Truman. He exclaimed. You want a friend in this city. He was talking about Washington. You want a friend in this city. Get a dog. But reformer Martin Luther said, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. 
we might say that true faithfulness does not contradict its words by its conduct. True faithfulness is where people are loyal regardless of circumstances. We come to the church at Philadelphia. The last but one of the seven churches. And Philadelphia joins the church at Smyrna. In being a church that receives commendation from Christ. Without condemnation. They are a small band of brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not a mega church. There are not thousands of people in this gathering. They are unable to lobby the local authorities. They don't have the power and the numbers behind them to set the trends of the city. But they are there. And they are faithful. And they remain true to Jesus Christ. They have laboured quietly. But effectively. And they have a joy in their hearts. A joy that has come from the great truth. That they simply live for Jesus Christ. And to us this church at Philadelphia is a wonderful model of what we should aim to be like. The city of Philadelphia was one with an interesting past. It's uh, located 30 miles southeast from Sardis, and we remember that clock face that we are on uh, of these seven cities. Not too far from the city of Sardis, not too far from that place where there is a dead and a slumbering church. But the city of Philadelphia took its name, that word phil, from filio, meaning love. But a particular kind of love, a love for one brother to the next, actually came from one of the founders. It was either Eumenes or Attalus who loved their brother. And the city was called after their particular affection for their brother, Philadelphia, to mean loving your brother. This was a city that could be easily defended. It sat 800 Meters above sea level. Oh, sorry, 800 feet. You take my measurements, right? 800 meters is quite high up. I don't know what the highest mountain is, but uh, 800 feet above sea level. And so they were looking down on those things that were round about them, looking down on the plains. And when a city is high up, it is much more easily uh, defended because it is easier to go downhill and uphill, and particularly in battle. Those who lived in the city wanted it to be a place of of culture and of learning. And so they abandoned their uh, national language, which was Lydian. And they took Greek to be their primary language. Because those who spoke Greek in those days, not so much now, because if everything's Greek now, it's confusing. But in those days, those that spoke Greek were cultured, they were learned. They were the people who were respected for having taste and sophistication. And here was a city that because of its position... And because of the people within it, was a hub for trading. Many trade routes passed through it. The soil round about the, the, the city was fertile because it was near a volcano. And volcanic soil is, is much more fertile than other soil. And, and many vineyards were planted here. And so there was a, a roaring trade in, in winemaking and selling. But there was a danger that this city faced being so close to a volcano. And indeed it was damaged around about AD 17 from the aftershock of a nearby earthquake. (coughs) Yet lo and behold there was a saviour for this city that was damaged. The Roman emperor Tiberius came along and ploughed money and resources into Philadelphia to rebuild it. 
And because of what Tiberius had done in rescuing the city and restoring it to its glory, uh, there was a monument erected right at the heart of the city to Tiberius. And so in Philadelphia, there was something of an affection for the Roman emperor. And yet right in the midst of this city of learning, of culture, of mercantile activity, of emperor adoration, right at the heart of all of this, there is a band of people who are called Christians. A band of people who belong to Jesus Christ. And we begin by seeing in verse 7 that this Philadelphian church was faithful to Jesus Christ because it knew what was definite. This church in Philadelphia was to be admired by Christians both near and far. Because this church in the city of the loving of one brother to the next. This is a church that loves not their brothers and sisters. But loves their Lord Jesus Christ. And have followed him in every way possible. It's likely that this church was planted during Paul's ministry at Ephesus. Which was not too far away. And very little stands out in the beginning of this church as to what it was like. But I think we can safely assume that even in the early days, here is a church that was faithful to Jesus Christ. Church tradition tells us that many of the believers in Philadelphia would eventually be martyred together with Polycarp, who came from Smyrna. And so there was much by way of difficulty that this church faced. It was not free from persecution. It was not free from danger. But what they did do was keep going on for Christ regardless of what they faced. And this continued well into the 4th century. A church here in Philadelphia faithful to Jesus Christ. And it begins by them knowing what is definite. And we see in, in verse 7, uh, the first few words of verse 7, that there is the perfection of Jesus Christ because it begins and says and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write he who is holy he who is is true then the letter begins with this very definite set of titles being ascribed to Jesus Christ and we see the pattern through all seven letters in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that it begins with a description of Jesus Christ it begins with the ascribing to Jesus Christ of a, a great and grand set of titles and here these two titles tell us much about the one who writes this letter. What is definite but the perfection of Jesus Christ. He is holy. That description can only ever be applied to God. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 that gathered around the throne in heaven. The angels sang holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. Christ is flawless. Christ is without spot, defect or blemish. Because he is holy. What does that word holy mean? It means to be separate. In fact the Hebrew word for holiness speaks about a cutting. And we might even say that from the, the Hebrew title of holiness... That the God and that Jesus Christ is a cut above. And we know what that means. To be better than. To be infinitely better than. To be beyond comparison. And this is what Jesus Christ is. This is his messianic title. That he is holy. Because he truly was. 
a cut above the rest of mankind. Christ came and he lived as a man. He took upon himself flesh with all of its infirmity and weakness. And he still lived that holy and flawless and sinless life. And he writes to the Philadelphians and says, He who is holy. Identifying to them that he is their God. There's no doubt about his deity. And the second portion of this title is that he is true. What he speaks is without deception. What he says is is not trying to trick or to mislead those who hear. And again, it is only God who can completely and totally speak truth. And so in accompanying his holiness, we see that this is the Christ, the one who is genuine, the one who is authentic, the one who stands apart from the people of the world where there is lies and deception and a lack of an ability to trust people in what they say. And the Philadelphians, as they face their difficulties, can rejoice in knowing that this is what is definite about Jesus Christ, that he is perfect. This is the one who comes to us today in the midst of our world. Everybody in our world has some angle. There is no such thing as true altruism, is there? Where people simply do things for the good of others. There always seems to be something at the heart of man that says, well, I will benefit you and I will bless you in doing something, but I'll get something in return from it. And Christ comes to us in his perfection. The Son of God comes to us with no flaw about him. With no selfishness about him. With nothing at all about him that is imperfect. And we compare ourselves to him and we always find ourselves wanting. Because we know our flaws, we know our failings, we know where we we simply fall down. But despite our weaknesses, we know that we trust in Jesus Christ who can never let us down because there is nothing of falsehood within him. What is definite to us is that Christ is perfect and everything that he says to us is trustworthy and it is true. But verse 7 goes on and it tells us something else that is definite. It tells us that the power of Christ is definite. There is nothing more exacting than the power of the Lord of heaven. It continues and says, Who has the keys of David? Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. This description of Christ continues, and these things reveal to us that he is all-powerful. He doesn't just have some power. He doesn't just have some capability, but he has all power. He has all ability. He's holding these keys of David. This tells us of the office that he holds. He is the Messiah. So often in scripture we read of the Messiah, of the chosen one coming from the line of David. And it is Christ alone who has this in his heritage. To hold a key means to indicate that he has control. There are many cars in the car park this evening. But there's only one person in here who holds a key for a particular car. You cannot go and take my car without the key that I have in my pocket. And tonight, because I knew I was going to say this, I've got the key in my pocket up here and not down there. Because it would be easy to take the key and then to have control over the car. 
But Christ holds the key of David. He has the control, the sovereign authority over all things. That king of the Old Testament who was lauded as being the best king that Israel ever had, he was flawed and he sinned, of course. But there was that idealism about David that never again was there a king like David. And Christ has those keys. And his power and his ability and his control is such that when he says something, it will happen. And we have the example here of a, of a door. When the door is open, nobody can shut it because Christ is holding it open. When the door is shut, nobody can open it because Christ is holding it closed. Imagine pushing against a door and on the other side is the world's strongest man. You're not going to get that door open. Or if the world's strongest man is holding it open, you're not going to get it closed because of the power that person has. But here is Christ. He has control over his church. He's not just advising the church. He's not just suggesting to the church, but he is controlling the church. And he holds the church in his hand. And his authority is absolute. And this is who we stand before this evening. The one who is absolute in his authority and sovereignty and power. He is above all and he goes before all. Nothing can challenge his will. Nothing can compete with him and nothing can overcome his might. You know, if we think that we're strong or we're clever or even that we're resourceful, we compare ourselves to Christ and realize that we are nothing. Fans of different sports talk about the goats of their sport. Have you heard that phrase? Goats. It actually stands for greatest of all time. Who would win between Bjorn Borg and Roger Federer in tennis? We'll never find out. Who would win between the two greatest football teams ever? The team from Liverpool in 1978 or the team from Liverpool in 2005? We'll never know. Who will win if they come and compete against Jesus Christ? Will we know? Of course we know. Christ will win. Because Christ has faced the greatest power that could possibly challenge him. He faced the power of Satan. He's faced the power of his demons. He's faced the power of death. Christ has come and he has faced the power of sin. And do you know something? As we were praying in the porta cabin earlier this evening, Christ is victorious over all these things. Jesus Christ is not just great. But he is the greatest. And he is the greatest without qualification. Nobody can even be put on the same page as Jesus Christ. And that is who we come to this evening. That is what is definite. The perfection of Christ and the power of Christ. But as we go from verse 7 to verse 8, 9 and 10, we see what is desired. What is definite and what is desired. This church was faithful. And because of their faithfulness, they were going to see a great reward. And this reward that they were going to receive is a reward that really we should desire as well. Because Christ has always desired the best for his people. Christ has always desired the best from his people. And when we speak of Jesus Christ, we are speaking of somebody who held nothing back. But he gave his all. 
And so when I read about Philadelphia, I feel refreshed that here is a church that simply desired to follow Christ. That here was a church that was not concerned with the latest trends. How can we get more people into our church building? We'll hold a bingo night and you'll manage. No, this church wasn't like that. This church said, who do we want to have in our church? Jesus Christ. They wanted Christ and they wanted him alone. And they knew that what Jesus would give them could never be bettered or surpassed or superseded. And so regardless of their hardship, regardless of the temptations that they faced, regardless of the persecution, it was Jesus that they wanted. It was only ever Jesus that they desired. And so we see in verse 8 that what is desired firstly is this, the providence of Christ. What Christ has given to his church is good and it meets their every need. Verse 8 says, I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here is a church that used what it had for Jesus Christ. We're not told anything of their resources, of their material possessions. But I think it is safe to say that they Perhaps we're not the richest church in the world. But despite perhaps lacking in some material things, nothing about what they did, nothing about their own activity was ever substandard. They simply gave their best for Jesus Christ. I know your deeds. That's what Jesus says to, to this church. The third time I've come across that, the first time we found it in Ephesus, I know your deeds, said Jesus to them. Deeds of perseverance and of labour and of toil and of orthodoxy in what they believe. And then in the, the church at Sardis, Christ again says, I know your deeds and I have found them half done. But here as Christ speaks about the deeds of the Philadelphian church, he is pleased with what they have done. This little phrase, you have a little power, it's not a criticism. He's not saying you're weak, but what he's saying is that the little power that you do have, you have used for me. The impact that you Philadelphians, that, that you're having on your city, was much larger than perhaps could have been expected. Because you simply went and told the truth about God and about sin and about Jesus Christ. And in the NIV, we, we read that this church endured with patience. That word endured is not something that we like to hear. Because if we're enduring something, it's unpleasant. It's not welcome. It's not wanted. But this church didn't just grit its teeth and bear what was coming. They endured with patience. They said, Lord, we will bear what we have to bear. As long as you want us to bear it. And so Christ rewards them by keeping that door open. Is it the door of the church? Perhaps. Is it the door of opportunity? Perhaps. But here is a church that are going to keep on going. They're going to be preserved by Jesus Christ because they are faithful to him. And this church should inspire us today. It should comfort us. So many of today's churches are small. Oh, we can look to America and often we're tempted to look across the Atlantic Ocean. And we have this perception here in Scotland that every church in America is a mega church. And there's thousands of people meeting in each and every town and village and city every single Lord's Day. But the truth is in our world today, churches tend not to be 
of that size. But that doesn't matter. We're not commanded in the Bible to build churches of thousands of people. We're not commanded in the Bible to build churches. We are commanded in the Bible to be faithful to Christ and to use what we have for Christ and to do what we can for Christ. And so we find comfort in this verse that no matter what we might feel we are lacking in resources, be they people or money or whatever, what we might feel we're lacking in doesn't matter in the eyes of God because what Christ wants from us is that we will be faithful to him and that we will be faithful to the gospel message. Jesus Christ does not reward us based on our size, our depth of wealth. He rewards us on faithfulness alone. And if Philadelphia was a fruitful church, it was because they were faithful to Christ. And there is a challenge to us that we give our best for Jesus Christ. And what a challenge it is because all too often we're tempted to just make do. We're tempted to say, well, I'll do this. I know it's not perfect, but we'll get by. Instead of saying, no, we will give our absolute best for Jesus Christ. We will present ourselves to him in as good a way as we possibly can. What is desired but the providence of Christ. What Christ would give us. How Christ would bless us. Because what he does give is always good. It is always perfect. But as we go from verse 8 into verse 9, we see that what else is desired is the protection of Christ. The guarding of Christ means security for these people in Philadelphia. And the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Is that not so often the ridicule that is put before the Christian? Ah, God doesn't really love you. Because they have this notion that we should earn God's love when we fall down. But Christ says here, I will show these people that I love you. We really shouldn't underestimate the hardship that this church faced. I believe one of the most dangerous places and times for the Christian was in the first century. There was no safe place for a Christian. Whether it be in Jerusalem, whether it be in Rome, whether it be in Philadelphia, there were those who wanted to harm the people of Christ. But here it is not the Romans that Jesus Christ identifies as the problem. He identifies the problem here as being the Jews and calls them once again a synagogue of Satan, a gathering of those who do Satan's work. Were they satanic worshippers? I doubt that very much. But what they were doing was, in effect, promoting the work of Satan. And the fact that they were persecuting and causing difficulty uh, to these Christians showed that they preferred evil rather than good. And what Jesus Christ says, they say that they are Jews, but they are not. They, they are lying. And this gathering of these Jews, the, the synagogue that we read of there speaks about a gathering. The synagogue of these Jews, the gathering of the Jews was not godly, but it was satanic. And they put out this lie that they really were God's people and they weren't. 
And how that is a throwback to the day of Jesus Christ as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day would put forward to the people that they were the godly ones, but actually they were the ones that were leading the people away from God and Christ came and challenged them. But this church in Philadelphia stands firm in the face of the criticism, of the persecution. And Christ promises this troubled little church that their tormentors would actually have to bow down before them. And these Jews would be completely defeated and subjected to the Christian. You know, we live in privileged times. We thought this morning about the sacrifice in the world wars to preserve our peace. We have the privilege this evening of coming here and we know that we're not going to receive a knock at the door of people wanting to end our gathering. But we are not promised an easy life. We're not promised that even in Scotland in the 21st century that we will be without difficulty and hardship because we belong to Christ. Proclaiming the gospel is a dangerous pursuit. We will encounter resistance. We will encounter trials. We will encounter antagonism whenever we mention the name of Jesus Christ. One of the things that pains me greatly is that we have a nation that will speak about God. If you watch the festival of remembrance yesterday evening, the name of God was mentioned time and again, but the truth of the name of Jesus Christ was glaringly absent oh people will say yes I believe there is a God but don't ask them to come and believe that there is a saviour that the son of God came and died because to believe that there is a saviour is to believe that there is something to be saved from and to believe that there is something to be saved from is to acknowledge the existence and the truth and the terrible nature of sin and people will not do that and so let's just airbrush out the name of Jesus Christ But as Christians, we refuse to do that. As people who we know that Jesus Christ has died for us, we are not going to simply ignore that name that is a name above all names. And we will face those who criticize. We will face those who would delight to persecute us. But what is it that we desire? The Philadelphians, they didn't desire that the persecution was gone. I'm sure they wanted it to go. But they had a desire that was greater than that. They desired this protection that Jesus Christ would have for them. Because the truth is this, that if Christ is protecting them, if Christ is holding them, it doesn't matter how serious the persecution is. It doesn't matter how the trials will rage because Christ has got them and there is no greater thing to desire than to have Christ's hands wrapped around us. We remember that as the disciples fretted for their lives on the boat, that the Lord Jesus woke up and simply said, peace be still. That is our saviour. That is his protection. But let us go into verse 10, for we could spend much time speaking about the protection of Christ and his wonder. But into verse 10 we see that as well as the providence of Christ, the protection of Christ, that there is the perseverance of Christ. In Christ, 
the Philadelphians find assurance that they will never be lost, they will never be destroyed. And verse 10 says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. What a wonderful final promise to give to the church as a whole. But what an amazing promise to give to the Philadelphian church. That Christ to this little gathering of believers says, I will, I will keep you. From that hour that is coming. That hour of testing. This is a teaching here. That actually looks towards the end times. Jesus promises this church in Philadelphia. And so by extension. He promises. The whole of the church. That they will be spared. From the great tribulation. That will follow the rapture. Christ says I will take you. And I will spare you. From those horrendously difficult days. I will remove you. From the wickedness of the world. What Christ promises here. It cannot mean the persecution. They were already in the middle of. They were facing it. And they would continue to face it. It cannot mean that. Christ is speaking about. Taking them from the eternal punishment. It was his death on the cross. And their faith in him that meant that they wouldn't suffer that eternal judgment. That is what the basis of our salvation is. It's justification by faith. Faith that God himself gives us. But it is justification by faith nonetheless. This has to mean. That Jesus Christ will take and spare this church. From the tribulation that is foretold in, in Daniel chapter 9. Also in Jeremiah 30. Matthew 24. And this is a promise of scripture that should truly comfort us. That there is coming a time where Christ will part the clouds. And with the blast on the trumpet he will call us to rise up and to be with him in the air. Being in Christ means that we will escape the experience of the tribulation. To be kept from is a Greek word that's only used twice. In the New Testament here. I will keep you from the hour of testing. The first time it was used in John 17. Where, where Christ said and prayed for his believers. You'll remember we looked at John 17 quite recently. That they would be kept from Satan's power. That way they would be protected from the power of Satan. From harming them. And once again we come to this strong phrase. that says you will be kept from the hour of testing. Christ will cause his church to persevere. Christ will protect his church from the tribulation. And that is what we should desire. And so the third heading that we come to is one that should help us. We have had what is definite, we've had what is desired, and now we have to see what is determined. And this speaks of what has been written, what has been decided, what has been determined. These are the things that are promised by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all know and we all remember that what is promised by God, what is promised by Christ can never fail. It can never change. It can never disappear. When Christ makes a promise, it should fill us with joy because we know that it is going to come to pass. When Christ tells his church something will happen. 
the church can bank upon it. The church can go forward based upon it. And when Christ declares certain things will take place, then we should be all ears to hear what he is saying. What is determined? Well, it follows on from what we were saying about the rapture and being removed before the tribulation. Verse 11 tells us that there is the return of Christ. That has been determined. The world has nothing to match this event. We live in a day and age where people are trying to better things that have gone before. If you ever sit down on your television, uh, with your televisions on a Saturday night, you find that the channels are competing for your viewing figure by doing something better and bigger and more grand than the other channel. But nothing can supersede or eclipse the predetermined return of Jesus Christ. Look at what verse 11 says. It says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. This promise is a promise that we need to be reminded of, that Christ is coming and that he's coming quickly. This little church in Philadelphia, it was a church that packed a punch, a church that had an influence on the world round about them, but they could find no greater relief than to know that Christ was coming back for them. In other churches we read of Christ coming, but in those churches it was coming in judgment. Christ isn't coming to this church in Philadelphia in judgment. He's coming to this church in Philadelphia to take them, along with all the other believers, to be with him for eternity. And this return is imminent. It's happening quickly. And that tells us that this church in Philadelphia had to make preparations. Not preparations to make themselves presentable to Christ. They weren't to put on their best clothes or anything like that. But what they were to do by way of preparation was to preach the gospel all the more. Was to tell the people with more vigour and more enthusiasm of the one who died to save them. The story goes, you'll know the name John Wesley. He was a, a, a powerful Methodist preacher. The, really the founding father of the Methodist movement. And he rode thousands and thousands of miles on horseback. To go from one town to the next to proclaim the word of God. And his diary was full of engagements and commitments to go and to preach the gospel. Somebody once stopped John Wesley and said, What would you do, Mr. Wesley, if you knew that Christ was coming back tomorrow? And John Wesley reached into his saddlebag and he took out his diary and he said, Well, I'll do what's in my diary. I'll go and I'll preach the gospel. That was his Preparing to meet Christ. That is what this church in Philadelphia continue to do. That is, is what we are to continue to do. Knowing that Christ is coming and coming quickly is a comfort to us. But it, it doesn't change the activity that we should be involved in. Because we, we should be preaching the gospel. We must be telling others of Jesus Christ. And that is uh, one of the great privileges that we have of the church, as the church. Is to tell others of a Lord and a Saviour who loves them. And this church has a reward for being engaged in that activity. They have a crown. Now Christ isn't saying that they could lose their crown. But what he's saying is this reward is before you. The victor's crown. The great reward of Christ saying, well done, good and faithful servant. There's the return of Christ. But in verse 12 we see that there is the reward of Christ. 
I will make him a pillar in the temple of, of my God. Pillars speaking of stability and immovability. I will place him in the temple of God and he will never be moved. And that reward is, is the same for us. That when we are in Christ, we are preserved and we are rewarded for all eternity by being in the presence of God. And then we see that something else that is determined, and very quickly because time has gone. But in the second half of verse 12 to the end of verse 13, we see that what is determined is the reputation of Christ. The name of my God. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. My new name. Christ's reputation is accredited to these Christians. They would bear his name. They would have their destination of heaven written upon them. And they would have the promise of a secure and a certain eternal future. Their identity was being engraved upon them because it had already been written in the Lamb's book of life. Our identity is in Christ Jesus. We are saved by his reputation. We should be known by his reputation as well. But what is determined that Christ will save his people for all eternity. Here we have a church that was faithful to Christ. They knew what was definite. They also knew what it was that they desired. And Christ was telling them here what had been determined. What is definite for you? It has to be the person of Jesus Christ. What is desired by you? We can desire many things, but what we should desire are the things of God, the things that would please Christ. So that we might truly rejoice and be thrilled by what is determined that Christ is coming for us and that Christ will reward this. Oh, let us continue to be a church that's faithful to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words that we have read together this evening. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ still speaks to his church today. And Father, we, we read these things and we study them and we are perhaps worried and concerned that we are not as faithful to Christ as we should be but we thank you that by the power of the spirit we can be brought alongside him and be made more faithful to him we pray that we would seek every day to be faithful to our Lord and Saviour we have sung this evening that great is thy faithfulness what a faithful God we have oh let us be a people who mirror that faithfulness as we go through this world, proclaiming the gospel, pointing to Christ, but also looking to the skies to see when he's about to return. Teach us, we pray, Father, for we do ask these things in the precious name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's close our service this evening with number 44. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Let's stand after the introduction, number 44. Let's stand. Let's stand.